Welcome to the Life and Times of Video Games, a documentary-style podcast about video games and the video game industry, as they were in the past, and how they came to be the way they are today. My name is Richard Moss, and this is episode 6, Romhack. Cast your mind back to 1995. This was the early days of the internet, when the world was still mysterious and when nobody really knew anything about video games, other than what was published in magazines or whispered about breathlessly in schoolyard gossip. It was also the early days of video game emulation. An emulator, in essence, is a program that replicates a computer or gaming platform, making the system you are using behave like a different one. Emulation as a concept had been around for decades, but at this point, personal computers were only just beginning to get fast enough to effectively emulate the video games of the past. And slowly but surely, loan coders had been figuring out how to emulate early game consoles such as the Nintendo Entertainment System, or the Famicom, as it was known in Japan, and the Atari 2600 and they were releasing their work online under freeware or shareware licenses. Nothing could yet be played at full speed with accurate sound, no glitches, but already some simple games were working well enough on a portion of that handful of emulators that did exist to play most or all of the way through. Emulation, primitive as it was, had already opened up a new world of wonder to the scant few people who had stumbled upon it. I first discovered it in high school. I want to say like 95 or 96. This is Steve Demeter. He's a professional programmer nowadays. If you were into mobile games when the iPhone came out, you might have heard of his game Trism. Or if you're really tuned into the game scene, you may have come across his work in the Demiforce Translation Group. We'll come back to that later. There was an emulator called Pazofami, which was a Nintendo 8-bit emulator created by a really odd Japanese guy. And of course, in those days, you couldn't translate or even view characters in Japanese on a website. So it was very much like, you know, looking at a bunch of square boxes on a website. And somehow some people had translated the emulator from Japanese to English unofficially, and they just, it was barely working. I mean, there was no sort of speed throttling, and it was using, I think, WinG, which was a precursor to DirectX, and it was just it was just a very small Windows, you know, one pixel for one uh, pixel. But it was, I mean... That's all we had. Most games didn't work at all. Or they couldn't get much further than the start screen. But even that much was super exciting. It was just, it, it blew my mind. Because, you know, up until that point, it was very much like you had cartridges, physical cartridges. And the ability to have a computer which allowed you to have a portal into a, into a game system which you didn't need to have in your dorm room or whatever, which is just fantastic. So I really, I really got into it. It, was, it really helped me discover games all over again. He played around with other emulators too. There were a few in development that focused on the original Nintendo Entertainment System, 
along with a few more that catered to its 16-bit successor, the Super Nintendo, and others that were for other consoles, like the Sega Genesis. It didn't take long for Steve to get interested in what was going on inside the games. Especially as at that point, some of these games were still coming out. As new boxed products, cartridges in a box, being put on store shelves, and you could buy them and take them home. There were just a few websites in those days. And my, my mind escapes me, but the, the, the few that were there, it was like emulators were kind of the new kid on the block. Because the real guys that knew their shit was uh, the, the copier scene. The guys that were actually, they had a physical unit attached to their Super Nintendo and would, would release games as they were still being released back in those days. You still see Super Nintendo games being put out and these guys would dump the ROM and release it the same way you see like a Wares release or like now like a movie release. That unit would connect to a computer and spit out a raw data dump on the game's ROM chip, which contained compiled executable code that the console's CPU called on to run the game. But just dumping the ROM into a file wasn't enough to make it work in an emulator. Somebody needed to go in and crack the copy protection. And many of the people making those cracks would insert a custom intro into the ROM file. They were kind of like a, a hacker's signature. They were basically a way for hackers to sign their work. Very rudimentary stuff, but just the, the ability to see something like that on a game really kind of twisted me for a loop. I was like, how did these guys do it? And you, you just go digging. Steve scoured what little there was of an internet at the time and gathered enough crumbs to be able to stumble his way into self-learning the requisite skills. He learned hex editing and got into machine language and he picked up Z80 assembly so that he could write programs on his TI-85 calculator. He felt compelled to learn the base level first, to learn how to program machines down to the guts, the bare metal, like they did on computers in the 1970s and 80s, and like they were still doing with console games in the mid-1990s. He thought that's what the cool people could do. They don't need C or Pascal or any of the higher level languages, because they can use machine language. And machine language runs faster. And that's what got me interested in, in, in ROM hacking. Uh, just being able to really be curious and then to pursue a knowledge of exactly what a computer is doing. And, and I think my first stuff was just, it was marking the, the NES headers of ROMs, because we'd be releasing ROMs. Uh, and I put the Demiforce, that was my group, the Demiforce header inside the NES, the first, I think, 16 bytes of the file. It's the first stuff in it, because I was like, I'm, you know, I, I get to look cool, and then it's not a, it's very low-hanging fruit, so I was like, what do we do for that? And as it turned out, uh, the header format changed, where you, uh, those bytes ended up being used by the header itself in years uh, that came after because of the mapper expansion, and I got in deep shit for that. So that was, I think, my first and... Uh, foremost foray into into uh, having absolutely no idea what I was doing, <laughs> but it was something. And I, after that, I think it was just, you know, I think it was just we we were all into it. My friend 
uh, Typhoon Z, he ran this site, I want to think it's called like Archaic Ruins, I think. And we were all just screwing around with stuff. And, and I think, I want to say I gained awareness of the Final Fantasy ROMs that had not been released in America. These days, there are multiple editions of every Final Fantasy game available in pretty much every country in the world. But back then, things were kind of weird. Whereas in Japan, Final Fantasy 1, 2, and 3 had all been released on the Famicom, then 4, 5, and 6 were on the Super Famicom. In North America, there was only Final Fantasy 1 on the Nintendo Entertainment System. And then... 4 and 6 had come out on the Super Nintendo. But the publisher covered up that fact by renaming those other two. So what was Final Fantasy 2 in the United States was actually Final Fantasy 4. And what was Final Fantasy 3 in the United States was actually Final Fantasy 6. And the real second and third entries were sort of swept under the rug. Not because they were bad, just because nobody thought they would be palatable to an American audience. These missing entries developed the kind of mythical status. Most Americans who had heard of them weren't exactly sure if they were real. It was all fables and rumours, just vague information reaching them indirectly, third, fourth, fifth hand, often via a friend of a friend's dad or uncle who had visited Japan and Maybe they saw it in a shop window or a magazine or something. And it was then passed along with the usual lack of precision you'd expect from a game of telephone. And and the discovery of these ROMs and just being able to play it, even if these shitty little emulators like, like Paso Family would just run the first bit and then crash. It was, it was so cool because you're suddenly on the other side of something. You know, you'd seen through the Matrix, you know, and instantly the curiosity went into like, how can I play this better? What what emulators are out there? Let me play this better, and can I understand it better? I majored in Japanese in school. I have a degree in Japanese. Strictly fueled strictly by the the, the need to play these stupid little games, <laughs> and uh, that led me into wanting to translate it. it. Just it was, you know, it, it it was like I said. I always felt like I was born too late, and you know, it, at my high school, if you don't, if you're not in the basketball team, you know, you get in the computers, and and this I felt that was my my calling, you know, my, my way to get into this. I, I wasn't back in those days uh, where I could work on assembly games back in the early 80s, you know, but I had this. And this was my way, I thought, to get into technology because I'm working with very primitive chips um, but doing very current stuff through emulators. So it was a great way for me to penetrate into that. First, he tried to dive in at the deep end before he could really reliably tread water and he announced the Final Fantasy V translation project. Then, when it quickly became apparent that it was beyond his ability, Steve gathered together a group of ROM hackers and translators under the Neo Demiforce banner to tackle a more approachable project. Final Fantasy II for the Nintendo Entertainment System. So, the real second game in the series. It was not only more feasible, from a logistical perspective, but it could also run perfectly in the existing emulators. Now, by doing this, they were breaking new ground, 
Before this announcement, the only ROM translation projects that had been completed were for smaller games, with very little text. There had been a few fan translations done uh, outside of emulation by a Dutch group called Oasis that had been translating Japanese MSX games on floppy disk since 1993. Now the MSX is a home computer platform that was big in Japan, but little known everywhere else in the world. But Final Fantasy II was big, and it had an actual story, simple as it was, that required some serious, substantive effort by a large team to translate successfully. The Final Fantasy II translation project wouldn't be completed for another two years, in August 1998. Although the main reason it took that long was that there'd been some creative differences between Steve, or Demi as he was known in the community, and his initial translation partner, Som2Freak, which had set them back eight months. But then once they got some momentum rolling, it was fairly straightforward, and most of the projects came together in less than a year. The one modification we did was to repurpose the Dakuten, uh, the little hash marks above certain characters in Japanese, so that it would print not above the character, but beside the character, and then indent uh, past that, so we could essentially have two characters for one for one byte uh, if they were in a certain area of the of the, um, of the table. And uh, once we had that, it was very clear we, we were able to get a, a, a pretty good amount of space in the script. Some editing was necessary, but eventually we got it all out, and the game, you know, played, and uh, it was great. I really, it was, it was amazing, and it was a great time, and uh, a great, just bonding experience for everybody involved, and you know, rah rah, and we did it, and the beginnings of producing a project, you know, and and going through the motions of of leadership and what that all was, and then seeing the the public response and all the PR and managing the, the, the expectations and the response of it and and going forward and, and doing the press it was it was I mean everything a kid wants at that age it was it was, it was a lot of fun it was just the outpouring of fans in general who were aware of it aware of the Final Fantasy series they could finally play this and the nestical emulator was around back in those days and it played it well and Within the community itself, it was received well, as I, as I recall. Somewhere along the way, apparently in 1996, Steve created the ROM Hacking Board on his Demiforce Translation Group's website. It was the first occurrence of a set of message boards that was separated from the broader emulation scene where people could go to talk shop and collaborate on projects to translate or otherwise modify the ROMs for cartridge-based games. And it established the term ROM hacking as the standard descriptor of the hobby. This forum is now unfortunately lost to time, unarchived, a mere memory of those who wandered its figurative holes in a quest for ROM hacking mastery. I just want to quickly pause the show for a moment here to ask that if you are enjoying this episode, please consider sharing it on social media and reviewing the show on iTunes. 
It would also mean the world to me if you could throw a few bucks my way every so often by making a one-time donation via PayPal at paypal.me slash mossrc or signing up for a monthly pledge on Patreon. Where I'll be posting lots of bonus stuff like extended interviews and sound bites and other fun little things. Head to lifeandtimes.games slash Patreon for more information on that. I'll remind you again later. But for now, on with the show. After the Final Fantasy translation, Steve largely stepped away from active involvement in the scene for a while. He was too busy making his own game, Dry Mouth, which leveraged his knowledge of assembly language on the Z80 processor, which, as it happens, was not only used in Texas Instruments calculators, but also in Nintendo's Game Boy. I came up with the name of the game after a late night of drinking and just wanted to make a game. I was like, this has been a really fun time uh, doing this work, this translation work. But I, I think having gone through all those motions and, and having edited someone else's work, I think it's time for me to make my own. He never did manage to find a publisher for the game, however. Even after a guy called Paul Bragill whose company Paragon 5 did the audio for the game, flew him to E3, the big games industry publisher's trade event. So he put it out as a homebrew game, freely playable in an emulator. Feeling kind of demoralised, he dove back into translations. Then, not long after, he caught wind of a prototype cartridge of an unreleased North American Nintendo game called Earthbound. There had been a Super Nintendo game released in America with that name. But the Earthbound that Americans knew was actually a sequel. In Japan it was called Mother 2. This prototype cartridge was for the English language version of Mother 1, localized fully in 1990, but never published because of a marketing decision. There's an article on the website Lost Levels that goes into detail on this, But in short, it was Nintendo wanting to focus on the Super Nintendo launch rather than split its attention with what was expected to be a niche title. Steve got in touch with the owner of the cartridge to negotiate terms that would allow them to dump the ROM and release it online. They agreed to a deal for $400 with the money raised by an internet donation drive. And then it fell to Demiforce to release the data in an emulation-ready form. They decided to change the name on the title screen to Earthbound Zero, to differentiate it from the Super Nintendo game, and they got a couple of programmers to fix a crash bug and defeat the copy protection. Then they put it out to the world. Certain people accused me of, like, translating it. They thought, like, you know, Steve went ahead and, like, it couldn't have been like a beta cartridge from Nintendo. It had to have been a, a fan work. And I'm like, well, that's, that's very flattering. I mean, I, I found this thing four months ago. If you think I can do all this in four months, I would love to be that intelligent, but I'm not. Uh, uh, but that was definitely probably the Earthbound Zero was the one that I probably did the least work on. The entire team did the least work on that got the most amount of attention. I'd been in two documentaries this past year for that one. And, just crazy the, amount of, uh, the legacy that game has left behind and the, and the fan community around it. It's such a fever pitch right now. I think it's, it's just such an amazing community that's, that's lasted. 
By this point, the ROM hacking and translations community had grown considerably. There were maybe hundreds of hacks in the wild, most of them little things like asset swaps, which is where you take an object or a character in the game and you change how it looks. Like say you turn the, the art for Mario into the art for Sonic, or you change some detail about it. Uh, like, like in an early hack called Quest for the Missing Hat, which took away Mario's hat and added it to a whole lot of scenery. And to this day, there's even a yearly hack release that updates the player names roster in Tecmo Super Bowl, the NFL game, to reflect the current season, a practice that first began in 1998. Some late 90s and early 2000s hacks were more ambitious. They altered game mechanics, so the rules of play became subtly different. Often, it would be an increase in difficulty, uh, occasionally a decrease in difficulty, uh, or some some features would get added to the game, or maybe some new levels, or music, new characters. Sometimes they'd turn a game into a parody of itself, like Wilford Brimley Battle, which turned River City Ransom into a quest to stop Kellogg's, the cereal company, from ruling breakfast. While other times they'd do what's known as a full game hack, or to use the modding term, a total conversion which involves taking the game logic and applying it to new content. So you put in new characters, new story, new levels, new music, new art. There's one from 1999, for example, called All-Star Levels, that overhauls Super Mario Bros. with entirely new levels and redrawn art. The biggest pull of the scene, however, was still translations. Dozens of great games had never made it over from Japan, Besides the missing Final Fantasies, there'd been no US release of several popular RPGs and non-RPG titles like Hideo Kojima's Police Noughts and survival horror game Clock Tower. And then there were games that had been released in North America, but had come with bad official translations. So there was just a, an enormous backlog of games that needed to be translated. And buried amidst that pile of untranslated games, there was one that already meant something special to a huge audience of English-speaking emulation fans, although they probably didn't know it yet. You might call it a lost sequel, or perhaps a missing link, to the popular Squaresoft role-playing game Chrono Trigger which is widely considered to be one of the best games ever made. Chrono Trigger never had a direct sequel, but it did get a well-known successor with distant ties to its story and world. That was Chrono Cross, released for PlayStation in 1999 in Japan, and then in 2000 in the US. And for fans of the first game, it left more questions than it did answers. What wasn't so well known was that there'd been another game between those two, released only in Japan, and only on a modem peripheral for the Super Famicom called the Satellaview. So this little-known Satellaview game was called Radical Dreamers Nusu Menai Hoseki, which translates to The Unstealable Jewel. 
and it was an illustrated storybook adventure with accompanying music and sound that was set in the same world as Chrono Trigger and that overlapped on some plot points. Steve adores Chrono Trigger. He'd fallen in love with it after a friend of his bought a copy when it came out and then proceeded to yabber on and on and on about his cool time travel plot and awesome battle system. Then he played it and it became one of his favourite games. Years later, he read an article that detailed what was described as the real Chrono Trigger sequel. He referred to the next moment in a 2006 interview as too good to pass up. The Radical Dreamers ROM had just been dumped only a few weeks beforehand, and now it needed somebody to translate it. But the active translation groups were all reluctant to take on a project this big. Then he realised that with a bit of help here and there from others in the community, he could be that somebody. Radical Dreamers was a huge translation project. It really was mainly a storybook, with text overlaid on some pretty illustrations and beautiful music being the bulk of the experience. As I made it, I was like, this is so weird. Why not just make a book? You know, because there's no animation, really. It's very small amount of animation there. I, I think they could have made just a novel out of it and be fine. The script was, I want to say, 700 pages. I translated the entire thing myself. By that point, I was about to graduate college and I had been studied abroad in Japan. So I, I had a semi-proficient working knowledge of J- Japanese enough to, you know, really put a good effort into it. In addition, there, you know, the technology had come up quite a bit in terms of services online to translate text. So I had a, a, a good enough effort into into really providing an accurate translation. And I had friends that would look over it help me on certain passages and it was just a really good experience putting that level of of effort into it into a work it was really like a book and it I, I had never done anything near that length before but just the ability to stretch myself and and you know plumb those depths of artistic creativity it's it was fantastic. I really loved that experience. It was just so fun because the way Super Nintendo ROMs worked, it was a lot easier to expand than the Nintendo ROMs. So I, I had all the space that I wanted to in the world to work with. I think I could have put that script in there like a thousand times over and still had space left. So I was like, you know, the sky's the limit. I was out of work at the time and my boyfriend was basically supporting me, which I would not recommend again because I was like... I graduated and just didn't have a purpose in life. And I just was like, what do I do? And I just like, fuck it. Like, I really want to do this. So it was basically full-time translating for a good, I want to say four months. And I would just get up and write this thing. And it would just be walls of text. Like, okay, this week I got to do, you know, the goblin battle and find somehow the creative juices to, to do it all and find some kind of creativity that I haven't said before. But I was so, it was so much text. And then it was it was the translation. And then it was the polish, the editing. And then it was the tweaking in the game. Those are the three steps I went down. And the translation was was probably the easiest part. The toughest part was the editing. You know, fi- you know, here's the words. And how do they make how do I make it into prose? You know, and that's the part that really required the caffeine and the sugar, because you just it it saps you. Because you're thinking of 
putting yourself in this environment and putting yourself on the battlefield with these things and what do I feel and how does that convey in, in text and okay, let's do it again in a different way and oh, here's a different thing, but it's the same and how do I make that feel original? And it just really drained me, but I, I, I loved it. You know, it, it was, it was, you just get through it and eventually you do more and more and then you're done. There's a special challenge to translation work, to localizing a work of art and entertainment, especially in games, where often it's not just about getting across the meaning of language, but also meeting technical constraints. So maybe you need a line of dialogue or an object name to fit within a, a set text area on the screen. Can't be too big, can't be too small. Or maybe you need an entire passage of text to all fit on the screen at the same time. And sometimes you might have an even trickier problem to solve. Like if there's a combat system that involves combining Japanese characters, which has actually been done. Or there's some other thing that uses the Japanese language in a way that has no direct equivalent in English. Radical Dreamers didn't have those sorts of problems, but it did have other challenges. I can make this thing however I wanted to. And the way that the game was set up, what they had a whole like a scripting system in there in which I wrote a tool to dump and and decipher. And at the end of it, it was I was so proficient at writing the script language that I could write a whole different game in that language. And I actually, I think I was talking with the community about releasing a tool to to let other people create their own games. I don't, I don't think I ever got around to it, but it was just, it was, it was cool to see that, that system within a game uh, and have that ability to actually fix things that were broken in the original, such as different paths that went the wrong way if you turned around, it was right versus left. But just to be able to honor a, a series like that and then to perhaps you know, offer some improvements on it, it was just, it was, it was great. I really enjoyed that one. Each of the other translation projects Steve worked on had their own unique problems. He describes these sorts of issues as the fun part of the challenge. I, I, I'm such a nerd. I love finding the art in very small, very looked over things. And the concept of finding a font to represent a style and a feeling, and then finding the right finding the right order and then the right kerning and letting to achieve a certain effect and a, a certain speed that the text uh, scrolls at and prints at. It's, it all goes into how this piece of art makes you feel. And it, it was such a fun time to, to, to get involved in that. It was all self-taught. Uh, and it just opened my mind about this stuff that I think very few people really ever look at. Uh, but just the, just the concept of focusing your something, your full attention on something that is completely subliminal, it really interested me. I, I just, I, I love that kind of stuff. These people who have made these games have never meant for anyone to come in, especially post-compilation, and, and start tinkering with it. And often, it's very unfriendly, and it'll use combinations of things and and words that are made up on the fly and you really have to that's your job as as the localizer you have to get in there and say how do i make sense of this and that's the puzzle right it was it was a puzzle to break the rom down into into something readable and put it back together again but it's also the challenge of making it look good and making sure that the the experience 
was analogous to how it was in the original audience. And yeah, sometimes it's just not doable, but it's your job to make it as doable as possible. The first complete Radical Dreamers translation patch came out in April 2003, with four revised versions published over the following 12 months. It was to be the last translation the Demiforce group worked on. These days, Steve is only a casual observer of the ROM hacking scene, which is still going strong after more than 20 years of activity. He's busy with his day job as a programmer, and his side gig where he's trying to finish the sequel to that hit iPhone puzzle game, Trism. A sequel that's been in and out of development for several years and has gone through multiple rewrites. In the early days, it had a team of 12 that he hired with some of Trism's profits. And more recently, it's mainly just been him. He says it'll be out in time for next year's 10th anniversary. At this point, he doesn't care about having another hit. He knows how hard it is to be successful on mobile. He doesn't mind. As long as it comes out and he's happy with how it plays, he will be happy. He looks back philosophically on his contributions to the ROM hacking and translations community and on the politics and drama that continually interferes and interfered in the creative process among its participants, often over really petty things. I think it's it's such a great area because there's so many different definitions of what a, what a localization could be or a ROM hack could be. You know, you're starting with something which is not yours, first of all. So right there you're going with something that's contentious. And then you're looking at it in terms of what credit is due and then uh, who influenced who. And then there's so many points there where things could go wrong. I think mostly people just want to be recognized for what they've done. And that's something that I think is universal. When all was said and done, at a time when the indie games movement was underground and tiny, while big business ruled supreme, ROM hacking and fan translations offered this potential utopia where people could just make what they want, what they love, and enjoy the artistry inherent in the medium. It was, it was a great opportunity for me to really take a step back from this is worth X amount of dollars and that means I am, you know, somewhere. It was really about, this is all about the love of things. And I don't know, it was, it was a great opportunity to really look at a post-scarcity uh, community and, and what could that do for me and my, and my well-being, you know? The Life and Times of Video Games is written, edited, arranged, and produced entirely by me. But there were some snippets in there from Final Fantasy II, Chrono Cross, and Radical Dreamers, plus a Kai Angle song. If you enjoyed the show, please tell other people about it. It'll also be a huge help if you can subscribe and leave a rating and review on iTunes or whatever podcast platform you prefer, and if you can share this episode on social media. The Life and Times of Video Games is on Twitter and also Instagram at LifeandTimesVG, and I am on Twitter at MossRC. 
If you can afford to make a monthly donation to help cover my costs and get the show to a point of long-term sustainability, head to lifeandtimes.games/patreon. Everyone who puts in at least $3 a month gets various bits and pieces of bonus content like extended interviews and unused material and a warm and fuzzy feeling that they're supporting the creation of more high-quality games history documentaries. I also now accept one-off donations via PayPal of any amount. So if you've got a few bucks lying around, or a few hundred, and want to sound your appreciation, you can send a payment via paypal.me slash And you can find links to everything mentioned here through the website, lifeandtimes.games. Coming up next time, we're going behind the scenes on Tomb Raider, one of the most influential video games of all time, and learning how its worlds were made. Until then, my name is Richard Moss. Thanks for listening. See ya.